Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. We are week 61 of the Chronological Gospels, and and we've been going through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I've been trying to mesh them together. Some things don't want to fit good. Uh, They seem to be uh, not out of place, but sometimes you just don't know exactly the place they should slide into. We're in one of those areas in the Gospel of Luke where... Either this section that kind of touches all the way to chapter 18, we're going to begin in uh, chapter 12, verse 47 today. But this area, sometimes other Gospels, mostly Matthew, sometimes Mark, touch on a few of the things that Luke addresses in this section. But uh, they seem to do it much earlier, and Luke having it much later in the timeline of Jesus. And so for me, not knowing exactly where to put these passages, I'm just going to lump them together and we'll go through this section of Luke. And then we'll get back into putting the pieces of the puzzle back together. I mean, this could fit right here, but it seems that some of the teachings belong somewhere else. And, you know, theologians have been kind of trying to figure that out for 2000 years. I'm not going to solve that. And so I'm not even worried about that. What I do enjoy is once we get into a section of teaching, even though we, I may have it out of a chronological order, I'm not as concerned with that. Once we get into the teaching, we know it's, it's the story of Jesus. We know that it's the Word of God, and we can trust it, and we can apply it to our lives. And uh, last week, I kind of cut the message short, and... It had to do with what I had in my note heading, had nothing to do with my notes per se, but what I had with the sheet that you guys get, I have a copy of it right here that I can glance down and see that and kind of get an overall view. And I realized last week that on that third point that my Bible program put all the rest of the verses in Luke in, so it had us going down to 59. And so when I glanced down and saw uh, 59 and we were just getting at verse 46 and it was already a quarter after, I said, that's it. We're done. We'll pick it up next week. Not knowing that I only had one little point left because we weren't going to go down to 59. We were only going to do two more verses, but I didn't turn the page and see what I was about. We cut it off. That's fine. Um, And we're going to pick up where I left off last week at verse 47. It was actually the final section of the last point from last week that was titled Girded and Ready. And Jesus was teaching in this section the importance of living a girded and ready life. And we talked a bit about that toward the end of the message last week, just being prepared. And girded, we don't have to think about this, especially the guys Here in the church today, there are guys in our world today that may have to think about this since they tend to want to wear uh, dresses and don't want to dress manly anymore. They might have to think about girding up a dress or a skirt, but the idea of that girded and ready life was that in Bible days, the men wearing robes, They couldn't really function in any kind of great activity unless they brought the robe up and uh, with a sash, put it around their waist to tie it up and prepare for work, prepare for battle, um, prepare for running. uh, Three things that we specifically talked about last week. Jesus also talked about the importance of being uh, ready in the sense of And we looked at having our lamps, the wicks trimmed, the oil filled, lamps burning as we await the Lord's return. And in verse 40 of 
chapter 12 in Luke. It says, therefore, also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So I suggested in living those girded and ready lives that we are to uh, take heed. We're to watch by taking heed, by staying alert, by casting off and putting on. Unlike unfaithful and unwise servants who did not do these things, they were not waiting the master's return. And we're going to touch on that again as we get into our message this morning. But I titled the message today, Judgment or Repentance. I have three points, and we're going to go down through chapter 13, verse 9. But beginning in Luke 12, verse 47 through 53, we have judgment, fire, baptism, and division. And then in verses 54 through 59, discerning the time, and 1 through 9 of chapter 13, repent or perish. And so I want to go ahead and just read the context of our first point. Luke chapter 12, verses 47 through 53, and then we'll get into the teaching of God's word. So picking up in verse 47, and that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given from him, much shall be required and to him to whom much has been committed of him, and they will ask the more. And Jesus said, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it was already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am until it's accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to bring peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. From now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two, two against three. Father will be divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So fire, judgment, fire, baptism, and division. And here we have a just judgment which should have been our final two verses last week, that servant who knew his master's will. So he proves himself to be unfaithful. He knew what God required of him. But two things I want you to see that the servant did not do. He did not prepare himself. And that refers to having his waist girded, his lamp lit, all that we talked about last week. And the second, the servant did not do according to the master's will. And some might ask, well, what is the will of God? It's a common question for a lot of people. Well, what is the will of God? And I know that individually, God can speak to us concerning his will for our lives. He can put on us a life call that he can give to us. I was asking the question when I was in my late 20s. Lord, what do you want me to do with my life? I'd spent 10 years in a Christian band. I was no longer with the band that I'd played with for 10 years. And I was in uh, construction as a brick mason. I was running work for since 23 years old. So practically anybody that I worked with, rarely did I not end up running work for them. Uh, A few occasions I did not, and sometimes I just did not want to. But um, I was asking the Lord at that time, what do you want me to do with my life? And I I was waiting. I was asking, and I was waiting. I wasn't in a hurry. I figured the Lord would tell me. And even if I didn't get a specific answer from him, then that also could be an answer, because in my prayer... He had already given me skills. He already had given me abilities. So in my prayer, I was thinking that if you do not call me to a specific ministry, then I just will continue in the trade that I'm doing. But I always worked for other people, and I would, my mind, uh, just go into business for myself and and do the trade that I love to this day, but do it uh, for myself. 
And it was about really a year and a half later when the Lord, in a church service, during a singing, not the preacher's preaching, it was a song that was being sung that the Lord uh, spoke to me. And I got, actually, it was in a Sunday school class that the Lord spoke to me. And uh, I knew what the Lord had called me to do off a verse of scripture that I saw while we were in a Sunday school class. And so um, after Sunday school, we had our church service. After the church service, the preacher was finally finished. He stood down front. I went forward and said, I know the Lord has called me to preach his word. I know what he wants me to do. And I don't know where or how, but, you know, that was another question. But I knew the what. And so God can answer. And that could be an individual thing, what he calls us to do personally. But also there are some general things. How do you know the will of God? Well, here's three places in the New Testament that plainly tell us this is the will of God. So that's pretty easy when the Bible says, hey, what's the will of God? And the Bible says, you ask the question, what's the will of God? And the Bible says, this is the will of God. Here are those three uh, sections from 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. And for, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that you should know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. The second one in First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. And we separate these so often, but they actually go together as one sentence, and whoever put the verses in, and we have the name of the individual, but uh, when he put the verse markings in, he chose to separate rejoice always from pray without ceasing, and separate those two from in everything gives, give thanks, but it's one sentence. It reads like this, First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So what's the will of God? Rejoice, pray, give thanks. That's the will of God. First Peter 2.15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Here's another example where scripture is very plain. Do good. In doing good, you're going to put to silence the ignorance of the foolish. So the implication in this passage is that God's judgment is not simply a matter of guilty or not guilty as we go through what we have read in this first point where he talks about those who have committed things worthy of many stripes shall be given few and those who did not prepare themselves will be bitten, beaten with many stripes the idea is that it's not a matter of guilty or not guilty, but based upon the knowledge that you've been given, it really helps to answer those who are very concerned with the individuals in some third world country. And what about that person who has never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? How will God judge them? Well, God is a just judge. He will judge them fairly. He will judge them by the knowledge that they have been given Though punishment may come, it may not be as severe as others to whom they had been given total knowledge. They had an understanding from the word of God of the requirements of God and the Messiah of God. For those who continue to reject Jesus, their suffering will be great. But we need to understand that God is just. God is righteous and he will rightly judge all things. Jesus, even when he was on the cross in Luke 23, 34, he cried out from the cross, looking down at the crowd, many who had uh, mocked him, spit upon him, those who had uh, crucified him, those who had condemned him, and those in the crowd that just uh, did not simply understand what was going on. Jesus' words were, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So when I read a verse like this, I do feel, feel that the Lord called me to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ when I was probably about 28 years old, um, and I've been pursuing that call ever since that time, and it, it caused us to go from Illinois to California and back to Illinois, and 
to try to start a church over in Zion, Illinois, and finally end up here at Calvary Chapel of Lake Villa. But it was a journey, and, and one I'm so blessed that Lily uh, graciously joined me and continues to come along my side in this ministry. But I leave, read verses like this, to whom much is given, the responsibility as a pastor, James said in James 3, 1, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you shall receive a stricter judgment. Now, I wish for me personally that James would have never penned those words because it means that God's going to require a little more from me. I don't like that part of it, but also I realize that if I would have not answered the call, there would have been an issue there too. So you kind of, you can't win for losing in this one. But what I want to point out, it's not just talking about a pastor or a teacher. It's written for pastors. It's written for missionaries. It's written for musicians. We talked a little bit about unfaithful musicians who were walking away from the faith last week. It's talking about writers, influencers in our day, everyone who has been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Those who are true believers, these verses, though, do not refer to loss of salvation, but loss of reward. We know this, that Jesus, and I love this, in Hebrews 7:25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That though we may mess up in this life and we may ask others to pray for us and we should pray for one another, also know that Jesus is praying. He is making intercession and he is able to save to the uttermost. So fire and baptism, Jesus talks about in verses 49 and 50. He said, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it was also already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am until it's accomplished. So when John the Baptist was introducing Jesus back in Matthew 3.11, he said that he will baptize you with fire the Holy Spirit and fire. He, the one who is coming after me, he's, John said, I'm just baptizing with water. There is one who is coming after me who is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And when I think about the fire part of that, I believe it can be taken in two ways. For believers in Jesus Christ, there is this purging work, this cleansing that God does in our lives that he can purge out, he can purify a believer to become the person, the individual that God has called that person to be. But secondly, it can refer to a fire of judgment that will come upon all who do not believe in Jesus. And I believe this passage here, Jesus is referring to the fire of judgment. He said, I came to send fire on the earth, and I wish it was already kindled. I wish we were already at the judgment side of this thing, but I have a baptism to be baptized with that how distressed I am till it is accomplished. That baptism that he is referring to here is speaking about his death on the cross. Before the judgment, Jesus understood that there was a work that he had to do and it refers to the cross itself. That word baptisma in the Greek, here it speaks about an immersion to be baptized, but it's referring to Jesus' suffering upon the cross. And later on in the Garden of Gethsemane, we learn that Jesus, being fully aware of the mission of the cross, he cried out saying, not my will, but your will be done. So he knew what was coming. And in the timeline of our chronological Gospels, uh, we know kind of where we're at in the general area here that the next big feast day for us today, we're used to calling it Hanukkah, but in John 10:22 it tells us the Feast of Dedication. That's the next big feast day coming up. 
The next big feast day after the Feast of Dedication will be Passover, and it will be the time that Jesus gives his life on the cross. So we are only months away, and Jesus already having it on his mind. In John 12:27, he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Jesus said, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am until it's accomplished. And there at the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed to the Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Though not speaking about physical suffering or death, believer's baptism represents this death of ourselves and a resurrection to walk in newness of life. And I was thinking about this. Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. But then in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, it tells us that we have been baptized with Christ. So um, that's just interesting to me that Jesus, speaking about his suffering, his death, calls it a baptism. And then John, referring to the sacrifice of Jesus, refers to that baptism saying this in Romans 6, 3 and 4, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through the baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So our connection with the death of Jesus Christ is not merely that we might be saved and go to heaven and live in eternity forever. But also there's a purpose for the here and now that we are to walk in newness of life. It speaks about the death of the old person, the old individual, the person we used to be, and the work that Christ is doing in our lives right now. We are to walk in newness of life. We're not to continue in our past sin, our past sins, but we're to walk in the newness of life that we have received through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus goes on to say, do you suppose that I came to give peace? And we would answer, why, yes, Jesus. At Christmas time every year, we sing about it. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And we sing that because Gabriel, the angels, sang that song. Um, they sang that song to the shepherds in the wilderness, peace on earth, goodwill to men. We sing about that. But here he's talking about the division that faith will bring upon the world. In 51 through 52, 53, do not suppose that I came to bring peace on earth. I tell you, not at all, but rather division. In Matthew's account of this, he used the word sword. From now on, five and one house will be divided, three against two, two against three, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So yeah, we sing Christmas carols saying, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, but Jesus' work of salvation, the gospel message of Jesus Christ is specifically the Lord saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. That right there brings division in this world because it teaches that there is only one way to God, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. So the message of the gospel divides nations and their citizens. The message divides communities and their families, and in many families... Though both believers and unbelievers may come together for the holidays, they may be cordial toward one another. They are merely bound by the physical bloodline that connects them. But often there is a deeper bloodline for the believers who have been bound by the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. There was a similar thing that took place in Micah's day. An Old Testament prophet in Micah 5 Micah chapter 7, verses 5 through 6. I'm just going to summarize what was taking place, and then we'll read verse 7. At that time, Micah said a friend could not be trusted. A husband had to guard his words with his wife. A son disrespected his father. A daughter was against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Very similar to what Jesus just said. 
And then Micah said in Micah 7, 7, Therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. The world is troubling, and sometimes that trouble is in our own family. And Micah says, it's so bad in our nation. He said that uh, friends can't be trusted. A husband and wife kind of worry about what they might say in front of one another. And this is happening in our world today. Sons disrespecting their fathers, mothers disrespecting uh, daughters disrespecting their mothers and mother-in-law and mother, daughter-in-law and mother-in-laws going at each other. That's not quite unusual. It's in scripture. Uh, it happens. But here, Micah, and I think this is a great answer for us. Yes, the world is troubling. So what should we do? I should look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So does judgment, fire, baptism, and division have you waiting for Jesus' soon return? What's your response to the troubles of our world? Does it have you prepared? Does it have you waiting as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ? Well, to help us in that, we need to learn to discern the times. In verses 54 through 59, we pick up through the remainder of this chapter, Luke chapter 12, verse 54. I'll find my place. Here we are. Then he also said to the multitude, when you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say a shower is coming. And so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be hot weather. And there is hypocrites you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you do not discern this time? So let's stop right there in our first portion of this section. We had first century meteorologists. They were able to determine weather just by looking at the sky. And we can still do this kind of basically. If you look for us, most often here, our weather comes um, mostly from the west. It can come southwest, northwest. Rarely does it turn around and come down from the north or northeast. And usually when that happens, it can be trouble for us because we pick up all the moisture off of Lake Michigan. Uh, it is why in 1979 we had like 48 inches of snow and stuff. We got a nor'easter blowing down on us. And it can be trouble, but most often we can look to the west and we can see in the day uh, how the sky is doing. If you look out there and you see dark clouds and streaks running down to the earth, you know that rain is on the way. And I learned this when I was 18 years old working in the trades, uh, just me and another tradesman. And we were uh, hanging gutters on a house and uh, the my boss at that time, he looked to the west and he said, let's wrap it up. And it's like, why? We're not done. He said, it's going to hammer on us very soon. And he pointed to the west. I learned to look at the sky. Jesus told me to do this, but I didn't, hadn't learned that lesson yet. And uh, I began to take that. Today, we just open up our phones, look at the app and say, yes, it's going to rain today. And then it doesn't. They still can't get it right. Yet a few months later for Jesus, he would say of the same people there in Jerusalem, as he's making his way for that final week there in Luke 19:42, he would say, if you had known even this, especially this your day, the things that make up for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. They could not discern. They could discern the weather, but they could not discern the time, signs of the time. And... Jesus later on said, if you knew, especially this your day, this was the day of the Lord's first coming. They had been given prophecies in the, for us, the Old Testament. And again, we mentioned this last week, I believe of 330 prophecies speaking about the Lord's first coming, all being fulfilled by Jesus Christ. They've been given that information and yet they couldn't connect the dots. They could look to the sky and know that it was going to rain, but they could not discern the coming of the Messiah. 
Even though in Acts 3.24, Peter would say, Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have foretold of these things. The information was there if they were willing to read, to understand. They could not discern the Messiah, Jesus, at his first coming. And because of this, the Prince of Peace was hidden from their eyes. Yet in David's day, when David was on the run, and this was for quite a a long time um, after David was anointed to be the next king in Israel, King Saul was still king. And, you know, I don't know if my calculation is totally perfect, but when I calculate out that call of David until uh, he became king, there's something like 17 and a half years he was on the run. It was a long time. He went through a lot. King was King Saul was still alive. And David wasn't going to do anything to impact that. He trusted that if God's anointed me, he'll take care of Saul, and then I'll become king. But even after King Saul died, uh, there was a civil war for seven and a half years, and only a portion followed after David as king, not the whole nation of Israel. It wasn't until after the civil war that they became one nation, under one king. But during that time, First Chronicles 12.32 tells us the sons of Issachar had an understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. The sons of Issachar, they had an understanding of the times. They knew what Israel was supposed to do. They followed David, even though they were not... Um, from the Judean tribe, all the Judeans followed David, the tribe of Judah. But here the sons went a different way because they understood. They knew the prophecies concerning David. Maybe they had heard about his anointing by Samuel. They understood. And Paul would testify of his day in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. In the fullness of time, this was the time of Jesus' first coming, but people did not recognize it. Many did not. So Jesus said in 57 through 59, yes, and why, even of yourselves, do not judge what is right, question mark. When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge, the judge deliver you to the officer, the officer throw you into prison, I tell you, You shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last mite. So Jesus said, first, we should attempt to settle matters without going before earthly judges. That's what he initially uses as an example here. He's talking about heavenly things, but he uses an earthly example. Try to settle matters. Don't go before earthly judges if you can help it. Proverbs 25, 8 through 10 Do not go hastily to court. Today we live in a society that loves to sue other people and to drag people into court. But the word reminds us, don't do this hastily. For what will you do in the end when your neighbor has put you to shame? Debate your case with your neighbor. Do not disclose the secret to another, lest he who hears it exposes your shame and your reputation is ruined. So try to deal with things. Paul condemned the church of his day in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 6, 5 and 6. He said, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between your brethren, but brother goes to law against brother and before unbelievers. So in the church, there are people having issues within the church, and instead of trying to deal with the issues in-house, they were going to secular judges, unbelievers, to deal with their case. We are not to be like a daytime TV show to air out our differences on the public stage. 
we are to settle matters, if we can, between one another. But there's a greater issue that Jesus is really talking about here. He's using earthly examples, but he's talking about the greater issue of settling out the matter of faith before we face the judge of all the earth. We should settle the matter of faith before facing the judge of all the earth. For those who fail to make their salvation right with God while upon this earth, Jesus reminds them that they will pay to the last mite. Uh, a mite, I have one in my desk drawer. I was going to grab it um, from the era of the time of Christ. Uh, basically, it was a copper coin made by the Romans, and uh, it was the lowest value coin that they had. And Jesus said, you're going to pay it down to the last cent, even to the last penny, we might say. And the point that Jesus wanted to make in this passage is that we all owe a debt to God, and it's important for us to settle that debt with him before Judgment Day. The way we settle that debt is through faith in Jesus Christ. We've been given a great opportunity to have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And if we neglect that opportunity, one day every person will stand before the Lord and be judged. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 and 2, We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you to receive the grace of God. He says, In the acceptable time I have heard you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And... May we understand the times to know what we ought to do. First and foremost, to know that we need to be saved, that we have to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Then as believers, uh, that question of how do we know the will of God, to ask the Lord the basic things we can read in Scripture of how we should conduct ourselves, maybe specifically asking the Lord what ministry you would have for us. But to know how we ought to conduct ourselves, may we have an understanding of the times. And then he goes on to speak about repent or perish. In chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, we begin in verses 1 through 5, and understanding great tragedies. So this seems to really pick up, and not that it was separated, but we just go right into this. There were those who were present that season who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they had suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or, now Jesus brings this situation up. He says, Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell, killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So having just condemned the Jews, learning to uh, figure out the weather by just looking at the sky, but unable to discern the times that they lived in, the time of the Messiah's coming, Someone brought up to Jesus, saying, What about the Galileans whom Pilate had killed and then mingled the blood of the Galileans with the temple sacrifice? It's as if, and this is my take of reading this, it's as if these were Jewish men from Judea, the area of Jerusalem, and they were really saying, You know those country folks over up there in the Galilee? They didn't speak, really think highly of the Galileans. And these from Judea were saying, what about these bad people whom Pilate had killed? Took their blood, mingled it with the sacrifice. What about them? Now, this is just interesting information for me, a student of the Bible, maybe to you. But this is only the second time that Pilate has been mentioned so far in the Gospels. He was mentioned in the Gospel of Luke already. As a timeline of Jesus' birth, 
He was mentioned in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, and that was merely just to give us a timeline of when Jesus was born. The interesting thing about Pilate, he will be mentioned another 50 times before we complete our study in the Gospels. For historians, secular historians, it was not until 1961 that they believed that there was a Pilate, even though in the Bible he is named 52 times. It wasn't until 1961 that there's no such Pilate. We can't find him written about in history anywhere. Nobody else ever mentions him. We only find it in the Bible, and since we don't believe the Bible, we don't believe that Pilate ever existed. And so they were using it to say, the Bible's wrong. You can't trust the Bible. They put a name, a source in here that has no historical evidence. And then one day in Israel, 1961, they were digging around, doing what they do in Israel. Maybe somebody wanted to build a house or a pizza place, whatever it is. When they go to break ground, there's usually people there to make sure that they're not unearthing any uh, stuff from history. And they found a stone that actually bore the name of Pilate. It's in the museum in Jerusalem today. Lily and I have seen this stone, so we can attest to the stone itself. Now this I know as a brick mason, uh, when you have stonework, you have the face of a stone, and then you have the sides in the back. You never want to uh, lay the back as your face, meaning that's what you see. You never want to get it backwards. But what they did with Pilate, he was out of office, and somebody said, well, this is a nice piece of limestone here. Why should we waste such a nice stone? So they took the stone, turned it around, maybe cleaned up the back, and put it in the wall. They buried his name to be discovered in 1961 to kind of wreck secular historians. And now we know that he reigned during the reign of Tiberius, who was Caesar from AD 14 to 37. And historically, we have Josephus talking about him, Philo talks about him, Tacitus, I can't say that. I want to say Tatticus, and that's easy for me to say, but that's not how you pronounce this name. Um, they all speak about Pontius Pilate. And what we get with this, that he was cruel, he was corrupt, he was unnecessarily violent, uh, mingling the blood of the Galileans. That's evidence of his violence. He was a shrewd politician. And his job was to keep peace in that region. And sometimes he was able to maintain the peace by force. So that's Pilate. What Jesus is referring to, these Jews that questioned the Galileans. Were they bad sinners because this horrific thing happened to them? And Jesus came back at them and said, what about the 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? They were no worse. In this life, things are going to happen. People are going to die. Uh, tragedies are going to take place. It does not necessarily mean that people are worse sinners or uh, not as bad. We live, so we're not that bad. You died, so you must have been horrible. Tragedies will happen in this life. Great tragedies will happen in this life. They thought about this with Paul. When he was shipwrecked and they swam ashore in the island of Malta, he was getting firewood, and as he went to go get a piece of firewood, a poisonous snake latched onto his arm. He shook off the snake. The people of the island knew the snake. They knew that he should very soon puff up and die. So they said, Acts 28.4, no doubt this man is a murderer whom, though he escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. So they just said, man, this is a bad guy. He made it through the shipwreck, but he was so bad that the snake bit him, and let's just watch. And they watched, and nothing happened. They changed their whole opinion on Paul, 
And no longer did they think he was a bad guy. In fact, they discovered that he was actually, through the power of the Holy Spirit, able to heal the sick. And the message of the gospel was proclaimed on that island. So perhaps the Galileans had condemned the people of Jerusalem when the tower fell, and now the people of Jerusalem are condemning the Galileans for Pilate's attack against them. Yet Jesus said, here's what's important. You need to make it right with God. This is what's important. Don't worry about what happens on this life, although we have to worry about such things. We also need to be concerned about not only the here and now, but the there and then. When we go to be with Jesus, Romans 3.23 tells us all of sin and falls short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So he gives a parable now, and we'll close out with these last few verses of the fig tree. Verses 6 through 9 of chapter 13 in Luke's gospel. A certain man had a fig tree. He planted it in his vineyard, and he came to seek fruit on it and found none. And he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? And so he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also. I will dig around it. I will fertilize it. If it bears fruit, well, if it does not, then cut it down. So the fig tree represented here. We need to know, first of all, that in the Bible, vineyards, fig trees were compared to the nation of Israel. So there's something that the Lord is talking about, the whole nation of Israel. They are not bearing fruit. And the time that's been given, in fact, you go back to Old Testament law from Leviticus 19, they could not, Leviticus 19, 23 through 25, it's in your notes, but I'll summarize it for you. For the first three years of a, a fruit tree's life, they couldn't eat any of the fruits. In the fourth year, they had to consider it holy unto the Lord. It wasn't until the fifth year that they were allowed to even have the fruit. So if we connect that to this, it wasn't just for three years he came looking for fruit. Uh, it was off limits for three years. The fourth year was holy to the Lord. And then it was year five, year six, year seven. And the servant, the keeper of the vineyard said, give me another year. That would take it all the way into year eight. A lot of time had passed. Let's see if we can get the tree to produce fruit. If not, he agreed we should take the tree down. Now the Bible talks in John 15 about living fruitful lives unto Christ. Jesus said, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away every branch that bears fruit. He prunes that it may bear more fruit, much fruit in verses five and eight, and that its fruit should remain in verse 16. We'll get to that in several months from now in John 15. But I love that portion of scripture. It talks about bearing fruit, being fruitful, bearing much fruit, and that fruit should remain. Basically, the fig tree often connected to Israel, whom God planted. He expected fruit. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 speaks all about my well-beloved vineyard that he planted. He said, I expected fruit. He, the fruit specifically, he looked for justice and righteousness, but he found none. They only bore wild fruit. According to that passage in Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. And God had come expecting fruit. He desired fruit. But if they would not bear fruit, then they would be cut down. For Israel that day, it took place in AD 70, when Titus and his men destroyed Jerusalem, not leaving one stone upon another. But I'm so grateful for the patience of the vineyard keeper. He who watches over us, he not only makes intercession for us, is able to save to the uttermost. He longs to bring people to repentance. Second Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises toward us, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
And once we come to repentance, like Paul in Acts 26, 19 and 20, who told King Agrippa that once you turn and repent toward God, that you should do works befitting repentance. You should live like a believer in Jesus Christ in this world. Once we have found repentance in Jesus Christ, we need to live like believers in Jesus Christ. That's why James was able to declare, uh, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. People should be able, be able to see that we are followers of Jesus Christ without us even mentioning the name of Jesus, without us having big stickers on the back of our trucks like me. They should know it by the way I drive, maybe, without wearing the T-shirt that I often wear. They should know it how I conduct myself when I'm around others. Many Jews of Jesus' day will stand condemned at the great white throne judgment because they did not perceive the time of Jesus' coming. And today, it's only by repenting of our sins and believing in Jesus that we can have salvation and be those who bear much fruit. And so, Father, we do thank you for your word that you have given us today. Jesus, you were condemning the Jews of your day, so many who neglected to see the signs of your coming. But here today, Lord, we have what we might condemn the Jews of not seeing the sign of your first coming, even though they had 330 prophecies foretelling in the Holy Scriptures concerning your coming. But Lord, would not our condemnation be greater? And the Bible tells us uh, theologians refer to over 500 prophecies that speak about your second coming. That Lord, you are coming again, and we live in a day and an hour where, Lord, we should be able to perceive the signs of the times. Uh, the world is in a difficult place. It is seemingly shaking up, shaping up and shaking up. It's shaping up, Lord, for the season of the last days. Should not our hearts be prepared that we would not only walk in newness of life, but we would do things befitting of our salvation, that we would be a people who desire to bear fruit, that we would have much fruit, and that our fruit would remain. That begins, Lord, with salvation, but it continues once we're saved by our walk in relationship with you. So work in our hearts, Lord, this day. Speak to our hearts how we should conduct ourselves. In your sight, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.